We get scared sometimes when we face the unknown. When we don't know what's going on, that freaks us out and we get scared. This is a basic truth that's confirmed by human experience. When someone hides around a corner only to jump out at you, to surprise you, it scares you, right? But it does me at least, maybe not you. And whether we respond in fight or flight, it's an involuntary physical expression of fear, of threat, of something that is unknown coming against us. The loss of the expected, the stable, the known in the face of the unexpected and unknown. That's what fear is. And in our sin, we often operate on a hermeneutic of suspicion. Sin is doing whatever we want instead of what God would have us do, not living according to God's word and his law, but according to our own opinion in rebellion against who he is. In our sin, our worshiping of ourselves and other things instead of God and being in active rebellion against God expresses itself in suspicion of others and the, the, the glorification of self or of some object other than God that we trust in. When someone in this world asks us to make a sacrifice, they back it up often with this phrase, come on, trust me, trust me. And our guards pop up immediately when we hear that that word is a form of self-protection. Trust me, because we have heard many people before in our lives say, trust me, but then they have proven that their word was un unworthy of our trust. We've seen so many people prove to be untrustworthy in this world. So we often try to self-protect by trusting in ourselves or things that we think that we can guarantee of good things to ourselves that we either need or even that we want. It's in the midst of our sin and our experience with the fallenness of this untrusty, untrustworthy world that God enters in and says, trust me. This is essentially what God said before the fall into sin, death, and misery. But we wouldn't listen to him before sin entered in, before we rebelled in our first father, Adam. But now, after the fall, it's even more difficult for us to trust God because of our own sin. And because of the noetic effects, or the effect of sin upon the way we think of our minds. In fact, it's impossible for us to trust God unless he powerfully intervenes. Unless he powerfully delivers by transforming our hearts and our minds. Unless he shows himself, improves himself to be trustworthy. But this is exactly what God does in his grace. He has proved himself to be trustworthy. He regenerates or he causes his people to be born again by the power of his Holy Spirit so that when they hear and see and witness in God's word, his request to trust him, that he backs it up, that he's sufficient for the thing that he asks us to do. And the first mark that changes in us is that we begin to distrust not God and trust ourselves. No, we begin to distrust ourselves and to trust God's word. This morning, we're considering the truth that God is good. That God is good. And it's as if God says this here in our text this morning in Psalm 34. Trust me. Test me in this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that this is true and your life and experience will prove that to be true. And in Jesus Christ, we have full assurance that this is true, that we are able to taste and see that the Lord is good. We're considering this from Psalm 34. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over there. Again, this is a Psalm of David. I'll talk a little bit more about the context in a little bit, but Psalm 34, verse 1. I'll begin with the superscription above verse 1. Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, 
and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's holy, inerrant, authoritative, infallible, sufficient, and necessary word. And I pray that the Lord would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. And here's the big idea of the text. The Lord is good. Take refuge in him. The Lord is good. Take refuge in him. Three points from the text. Number one, fear of the Lord conquers all other fears. Fear of the Lord conquers all other fears. Number two, God's goodness means that we don't have to be afraid. God's goodness means that we don't have to be afraid. And then number three, God proves his goodness by saving through Christ. God proves his goodness by saving through Christ. It's my hope and prayer that the Lord would help all of us to grow in our understanding of what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord and to find comfort and rest in the fact that he saves his people, not merely from the deliverance from the things of this world, but from the condemnation that we deserve in his eternal wrath for our sins. Number one, the fear of the Lord conquers all other fears. I've often thought uh, back to a number of circumstances in my life where there's been close calls. Most of them have been in cars, near misses at an intersection when someone runs a red light, semis that are swerving on the interstate in the middle of a long trip, pumping the brakes on ice, narrowly missing cars or trees. I can remember a number of circumstances like this growing up and then even uh, in recent years as well. Some would see these kinds of near misses or these uh, little events in our lives, so-called at least, and then they, they would chalk that up to uh, chance or to personal pride, putting their hope in their foot that they pumped the brake when they did. Uh, both of these, though, miss the mark. Uh, I could extend this thinking all the way to the medical care that we've received throughout the course of our lives to the way that my wife cares for me the times that my parents and friends have helped me in the midst of other circumstances, to so many brothers and sisters in Christ in churches that I've been a part of throughout my life who have prayed for me, brought me meals, taught me of God's word, financially supported me in my education and in my teaching. These moments of personal deliverance and provision are good gifts from the Lord in this life, and he deserves the credit. We should give credit to God when he cures us from cancer, even if he has done that through the hand of medicine and a doctor. We should give credit to the Lord for saving us from that near miss of being almost hit by another car in the middle of an intersection, or saving our life when we got into a really difficult car accident or an injury. God deserves the credit for even these little good gifts that he gives us in the midst of our life here and now in this world. He deserves our, 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 all the credit for the deliverance that he gives in these types of good gifts. He deserves our thanksgiving. For these good things. Psalm 34 is a psalm of giving credit to where credit is due. God. God deserves the credit. Look at verses 1 through 7. Again, I'll start with a superscription of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, David talking about himself, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now these verses 1 through 7 break down into a couple of different sections. First, verses 1 through 3, singing of personal commitment and praise to the Lord at all times, coupled with an invitation for everyone around them to join in. And second, verses 4 through 7, David's experience applies to anyone and everyone who seeks after the Lord. Let's consider the first uh, here first in verses 1 through 3. Singing commitment to praise the Lord and inviting others to join in. Songs like this aren't written to be sung alone in isolation. This is a song of praise. Look at the first phrase. I will bless the Lord at all times. Whether we are in comfort and pros earthly prosperity in this world, we sing of the goodness of God. We bless the name of the Lord. And when we are in the midst of trials and suffering, we bless the name of the Lord all times. Bless here is paralleled by praise in the, the second phrase there. So God blesses humanity by giving them good gifts. Right, but when humanity blesses God, it doesn't mean that we give him good gifts, but rather that we give him the only thing that we can give for the gifts that we have received. Recognition, right? giving praise and thanks to where it is due, giving credit where it is due, thankfulness, gratitude, praise, worship, fear, and awe. David is making a resolution. I will bless the Lord at all times. Right? We look at our hearts and we see the ways that we struggle with unbelief or we struggle with sin and disobedience to God's word. We need to resolve regularly. I will bless the Lord at all times. God, help me to repent of my sin, of not blessing the name of the Lord at all times. Help me to do this. I resolve and commit. You know, we're close to New Year's. People make New Year's resolutions. Maybe you shouldn't do this because people often fail in their New Year's resolutions. But this is a good commitment to make all year long. I will bless the Lord at all times. And this isn't the praise of empty lips with hearts that are cold to the Lord. This isn't the empty praise of a poser. Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. It's not just something he's saying with his mouth. It's his soul, his heart, the seat of his affections and his emotions and of his decisions and his actions. Beware, friends, of hypocritical praise as a poser. Beware of hypocritical praise that comes from your lips, but your heart is far from it. This is one of the reasons that God gives us the gift of a local church. There are times that our hearts grow cold and we need to hear invitations like this. In verse 3, oh magnify the Lord with me. Come on guys, magnify God with me. Show of his glory and let us exalt his name together. That's the longing of the Christian heart. There's no such thing as a solo Christianity. Me and God, me and Jesus all by myself. No, let's do this together. And when I struggle to give boast to the Lord and praise and awe and worship to him, I need a brother and sister right next to me proclaiming this. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. You come with me. I know you're struggling to do this right now. Let's do this together. We need one another to encourage and embolden each other to give God the credit that he is due for his mercy and his grace with our whole hearts, our souls, and our mouths, our lives, and our actions. According to the wisdom of the world, David had every reason to abandon everyone else because everyone in the world had abandoned David. Look at the superscription again of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him, drove him out and he went away. This is the context of the psalm. King Saul was trying to kill David, so David fled to Nob. He didn't even have any food. So Nob, the, the, the priest at Nob, Ahimelech, gave David some of the showbread. And many of you are probably familiar with that, but he gave David some of the showbread, the bread of the presence, the holy bread. And then he also gave him uh, Goliath's sword. But David wasn't safe at Nob. 
from the pursuit of Saul, of King Saul. So he fled away from Nob to Gath, right? The city of Gath in the Philistines, the land of the Philistines. And Gath happened to be as well Goliath's hometown. So he's fleeing Saul. The, the, the priest at Nob gave David some food and the sword of Goliath. And he's fleeing now from Nob to Gath. So the only place that he felt like he could find safety from King Saul, which was in the land of the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and again, the hometown of Goliath that David had killed, remember? And he's carrying Goliath's sword into this hometown. Now keep your finger in Psalm 34, but flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you have your Bible with you, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. All right, 1 Samuel, chapter 21. And listen to it. I'll, I'll read from verses 10 through 15. 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, uh, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? They did not sing to, uh, did they not sing to one another of him, of David, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. They sang, the Israelites sang of the greatness of, of David. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle, his spit, run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You can see that that's the context of this psalm, that David is writing this song. The song is particularly remembering God's deliverance in this specific circumstances in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Maybe David wrote it down when he fled away from Gath to the cave at Adullam. Or maybe he wrote it years later. But it's about how he acted uh, when he was before uh, Achish. And another name for Akish is obviously, you can see the superscription there, Abimelech. He was, in, he was acting like he was insane there. David is not taking credit for acting like a madman. He didn't save himself. Yes, he had responsibility to make a wise decision in earthly eyes to try and escape from Akish, right? And, and Gath and the, the wrath of the Philistines. And yet... David doesn't take credit for the fact that he came up with some design to act like an insane person so that they would let him go. No, he gives credit to God. David didn't save himself through this trick. God saved David. In the same way that David doesn't puff him, himself up with pride and take credit for the killing of Goliath earlier, he gives credit to God. In this psalm, it's an acrostic. An acrostic simply means that each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Right, from Aleph to Tav, or A to, to Z. After all this happened, David sat down to write this psalm in Psalm 34, using the full breadth of the Hebrew language to express God's goodness. And the fact that we don't know when David wrote this, whether he's hungry and alone, or he's hunted by King Saul, or later in life, uh, it's helpful to underscore that verse 1, there, I will bless the Lord in all times, whether in sorrow or when things are going well. But notice second, in verses 4 through 7, David makes application to anyone and everyone who would seek after the Lord. God delivers his people from all their fears. Their fear, uh, th there is a fear that conquers all other fears, the fear of the Lord. Do you struggle with fear of men? Do you fear unemployment? or sickness, or hunger, things that are coming against us, that threaten to take away good things that we know and experience and have in this world? Do you feel like anxiety lurks around every corner of your life? 
Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, fear the Lord, and delivers them. In verses 1 through 7, fear is primarily described as an intentional, purposeful act. Blessing, praising, boasting, magnifying, exalting, seeking, and looking. A heart that fears is a heart that acknowledges value in something. When everything that this world blesses, praises, boasts, magnifies, exalts, and seeks and looks to is threatened, it is afraid. When those things that we boast in and praise in this world are threatened to be taken away, we become afraid. When things that are stable in this world, seemingly stable, become a, a chaotic mess, we are afraid. But there's a fear that overpowers all other fears, the fear of the Lord. First, because God is the giver of all good gifts. He is the giver of all things, all good things, that we're afraid of losing. If he is the creator and he is the giver of all good gifts on earth, then fearing rejection from him is a more powerful fear than any other fear that we would have of loss or instability of the constantly changing things in this world. To be at enmity with God is to face the threat of separation from all that is good that he gives to the creatures of this world in his common grace. Right? So we first, we fear God, and that fear is more powerful than the fears of this world because we see him as the good giver of all good things. Second, if we fear God's rejection, judgment, and wrath in hell for our sins, then and, and we know that there's no amount of good works that we can do to get rid of our shame for our sins, we will look to him for a savior and for deliverance, and not to ourselves, not to the things that this world boasts in. The fear of God is more powerful than the fears of this world because the, the things that this world is afraid of losing, the good things that this world is afraid of of losing in their lives, they're going to lose all those things anyway. That we will lose what we have in this world because we will die and we can't take what we have with us. But if we have deliverance and forgiveness for our sins in God and we tremble before his might in awe and we praise him and we have forgiveness the giver of the good things that we will surely lose because we will all die is the good giver of all things that we will have beyond death. Third, if we have hope of forgiveness for our sins from the one true and living God who eternally exists in the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, all worldly fears lose their power over us. The God who gave good things that we're afraid of losing has promised to give us even better things if we are in Christ, if we are his people. David is experiencing everything that this world fears, right? Abandonment, hunger, isolation, physical enemies who would take his life. But there's more to our existence than these things, than food or friendship or even life itself. Our souls will live forever. And those who look to the Lord are described here as radiant. Their faces will shine before this world and eternally lit up by the glory of Christ. And they will have faces that will never be ashamed, even though we are sinners. To be forgiven for our sins against God makes God's people shine. Even in the deepest sorrows, as we walk through this broken world in the valley of the shadow of death, we have a joy if we have Forgiveness and reconciliation with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good things of this world and money, food, stuff, protection, friendship, whatever, that cannot bring us the radiant gladness, the radiant happiness for which we were made. Who are the glad here? Verse 2. The glad are the humble who hear boasting in the Lord. They are the, the glad or the happy in this text are the poor David himself, the poor man who cried to the Lord. As David's greater son, Jesus Christ, would teach years later, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed 
are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God's people face many sorrows and trials in this life. But because our happiness is rooted in being delivered from the greatest fear that we could face in God's wrath, his just and good eternal wrath for my sins, I don't have to be afraid of things that are frightening in this world. Happy, blessed, happy are those who recognize that we are spiritually poor, that we are humble, that we need God's gift of his son, that we need the righteousness that we don't have in our lives, the perfect righteousness of Christ on our behalf, given over to us to clothe us so that we might be declared justified in God's sight, forgiven. Second point, God's goodness means that we don't have to be afraid. Verse 11 is an invitation to learn the fear of the Lord here. We'll be considering this point from verses 8 through 14. First, the fear of the Lord is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. God is better than your favorite food. God is better than the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen. The God who made the creation called it good. And he made us in his image and likeness with a capacity for pleasure. For a capacity to see things that God has made. And ultimately to see how pleasurable God is himself in his goodness. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God didn't have to make beautiful trees, but he did. He did it for the sake of his own glory, and he did it for our enjoyment in recognizing him. Taste buds and eyesight, vision, they exist to teach us about the goodness and glory of God. Look at verse 8 through 14. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer for, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David faced the fear of hunger the fear of seeing no earthly good. But losing these things in this world doesn't mean that one loses favor with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and when we fear the Lord, we get everything. This is a beautiful promise for those who repent and trust in God in verse 9. Those who fear Him have no lack. They have no lack. They have no want. If God, if, if we have God, whom shall we fear? Is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Consider some particular fears, though, that the Apostle Peter takes and lifts from Psalm 34 and applies to the Christian life. When we do not fear the Lord, our lives are characterized by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter writes this, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2-3. through 3. Peter applies Psalm 34, he quotes it here, uh, to apply it to the Christian life in a world that is surrounded by unbelievers. Christians living in a world that is not their home. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, it says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How do we express fear of the Lord in this world? The Apostle Peter applies it to our lives practically in submission. Submission. And he gives three examples of submission that express our fear of the Lord. First, 
submit to every human institution, whether emperor or governors, that God has sent to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Fearing the Lord looks like seeking to honor everyone who, to whom we are able to honor, according to God's word. To love the, the brotherhood. To love the church. To fear God. Honor the emperor. The second 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, it says this. It applies the fear of the Lord in specific relationships of servants to masters. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So if we would fear the Lord, we have to ask the question of who's in authority over me in this world? Who is your boss? Who's your supervisor at work? Kids, who is a teacher at school, parents at home. This is where the, the rubber meets the road of what it looks like to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord drives us to find refuge in the substitutionary atoning death and justifying resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And this then enables the church, God's people, to live a life of submission to God by submitting to authority that we experience in our life in this world. That's what it looks like to walk in the fear of the Lord. This enables us to live a life of submission to God by submitting to authority in our lives. In all of life, we have to submit to someone or something. And that leadership is not always just. And yet, we are able to submit in a, to that thing that's frightening to us without fear. This leads to the third practical application that Peter draws from Psalm 34 in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, of wives submitting to their own husbands. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word uh, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then he follows that with what it looks like to fear the Lord for husbands of loving in their wives and living in an understanding way with their wives. Verse 6, I think, is a really helpful summary of the Christian life as we seek to submit to God by submitting to the government that we live under, by submitting to our bosses at work, children submitting to their parents, wives submitting to their husbands, to their own husbands, whether good, gentle, or unjust. Do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. This doesn't justify abuse. This doesn't remove the grounds for divorce that exist in the case of sexual immorality or in the case of an unbeliever abandoning by divorcing, leaving, or forcing a spouse to flee for safety. This simply acknowledges that the world is filled with threats in every sphere of life. How can we overcome fear and anxiety? to the authority structures that exist in this world. Fear the Lord by seeking refuge in Him through Christ, through His gift of His Messiah, of His one and only Son, that we would find rest and deliverance for our souls from that greater threat of, of God's wrath for our sins. The things that come against us in this world are nothing compared to a God who is at enmity with us because of our sins. So if we have forgiveness for our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. We don't have to be afraid of the things that come against us. We don't have to be afraid to submit to even unjust worldly authorities. Only seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness. Friends, we live in a world of injustice because of sin. But it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
This doesn't mean that we don't pursue justice. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue righteousness or that we would neglect to purchase our freedom from difficult circumstances when we can. No. But, but, but the point is that we can endure the fears of this world because we have a greater fear in the Lord. There is great joy in humble circumstances. Our hearts lie to us about this truth, but there is great joy to be had in humble circumstances. There is great joy to be had in poverty because it reminds us of our spiritual humility and our spiritual poverty before God if we are exposed to the shame that we deserve for our sins against God. And his enmity against us is satisfied fully in Christ if we are trusting in him, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. As Paul writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Fearing the Lord leads sinners to the eternal king that God promised David and that David was hoping in, Jesus Christ. So if we have trembled before God's awesome judgment and we have been cut to the heart in conviction of sin, and we found deliverance through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all things are ours in Christ. Even the call to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, is a call to give up all things in this world. But listen to God's promise that we receive a hundredfold of the good things that we give up in this world when we inherit eternal life. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus said this, And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And friends, we may be poor, weak, hungry, helpless, facing death, and abandoned here. We may be lonely. We may face unemployment. We may face for following after Christ losing our jobs, or uh, to be canceled by our culture. We may be in situations like David was here, where we feel like we have to flee persecution by running to an enemy and then act like we're going crazy, spitting in our face and drooling at the mouth so that we can get out of trouble. Friends, if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we have sought refuge in God through the gift of his son who died for us, Jesus Christ, friends, we lack nothing. And we have nothing to be afraid of in this world, though we face many frightening circumstances. Fear of the Lord through repentance and faith in the gospel powerfully changes our relationship with the world. And listen to how the Apostle Paul describes how our relationship to the world changes when we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 to 31. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Friends, brothers and sisters, are we so caught up? with finding our fear in the things of this world, in this material realm that we live in for a brief time? Are we so caught up in these things that we are missing that through Christ, our life and our relationship to these things is completely transformed? We can lose everything. And in worldly eyes, according to the flesh, that looks like misery and despair and anxiety and fear. But friends, if we have Christ... We know that we will receive back a hundredfold what we have given up in this world. Our relationship to this world has completely been transformed through Jesus Christ. Verse 10 gives a powerful metaphor. Those who fear man and fear possessions and live for hedonistic earthly pleasures alone are like lions. They are like a strong predator here and now. But though they are lions, they seem to be strong. They're actually starving. There is the appearance of health and strength through worldly eyes. But it is actually death and famine. But those who seek the Lord, who look like helpless, weak prey in this world, 
they, in Christ, lack nothing. Indeed, in Christ we have received what we lack. And we have the promise of receiving it a hundredfold in his eternal kingdom. Friends, take up this invitation from David. Fear the Lord. Repent of your sins. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it because God is good and he has given such beautiful promises by his grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This leads to my third point. God proves his goodness. God proves his goodness by saving through Christ. He proves his goodness by saving through Christ. The chief mark of those who fear the Lord is that they fear the just judgment and condemnation of God for the the shame that results from their sins. Conviction of sin driving men and women, boys and girls, to repent and believe in God as the Lord who is able alone to redeem us and save our lives, not from the mere threats of this physical world, but eternal death and hell. For our sins. God's people are described as righteous saints, his servants in this psalm. Look at verses 10 through 17, or 15 through 22, rather. Verses 15 through 22. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of those, uh, the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him, will be condemned. Friends, God's people will not face condemnation from God. God's people don't fear then condemnation, affliction, persecution, trouble in the face of men in this world coming against them. They fear the prospect that the face of the Lord would be against them. And the parallel that they fear is that the memory of them would be cut off from the earth. This simply means that God wouldn't remember them, save them, protect them, provide for them, deliver them out of their trials and out of the chief trial of his final judgment and condemnation for sin. The chief mark of God's people is that they flee the greatest threat against their souls, God's just condemnation for their sins. As Jesus teaches, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he hears their cry. So, brothers and sisters, cry to God for help in the midst of temporal trials that we face. But chiefly, cry out to him for help of the eternal trial that we face for our sins. If you're listening and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, cry out to God for forgiveness for your sins through the provision of his Son. This is eternal life or eternal death. Look at the way that he describes the affliction of the wicked. In verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. God's judgment is coming. Flee God's wrath by trusting in the only way that we can be saved, Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. We need to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He hears their cry, but how can David or any of us be counted righteous? Again, clothed. We need an alien righteousness that is outside of ourselves, applied to us. The perfect righteousness of the promised Messiah, the the son of David, the the son of Mary, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the son of Adam and Eve, the, the son of God. How are we delivered from the many afflictions that face us in this world? If we are found righteous, not through our righteousness, but clothed, in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that we receive by his grace alone when we receive 
and, and trust in Jesus. Jesus is true God and true man. He was sinless. He was born to save his people from their sins by living a perfectly righteous life, by being afflicted, suffering torture, and being nailed to a cross, naked, to die. And worse than all of this, he was afflicted with the eternal wrath of God for all of his people's sins, bearing the weight of the eternal conscious torment that his people deserve for their sins. This is David's only hope to be found righteous in God's sight. And this is our only hope of being found righteous in God's sight, to be clothed with a righteousness that we see, if we're honest with ourselves, that we don't have. To have Jesus as my substitute to bear God's wrath in my place. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, God is saying, trust me. And many have rightly recognized that Psalm 34, verse 20, points us to Jesus Christ. The Lord, look at it there, verse 20 of Psalm 34. The Lord keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The Apostle John writes in John chapter 19 that after the Romans pierced Jesus' side and the blood flowed mingled with water, that that was proof enough to the Roman soldiers that Jesus had already died. So they didn't need to break Jesus' legs to speed up Jesus' death on the cross by suffocation. Listen to John chapter 19, verse 36. For these things, and why did they not break Jesus' legs? These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. We have deliverance from affliction through the son of David, Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, whose bones were not broken upon the cross. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's hope of freedom from God's just condemnation. And Jesus is our only hope of forgiveness for our sins. Brothers and sisters and friends, taste and see that the Lord is good by trusting not in your good works, but trusting in the perfect work, the substitutionary death and resurrection work of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus took his people's sins. He imputed it or, or credited it to himself so that in Christ, his people would become or be imputed or credited with Christ's sinless righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, even though we have disobeyed God's word. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's hope of deliverance from earthly sorrow, and he is perfectly fulfilling even the suffering that David faced. David was still a sinner, but Jesus was a sinless sufferer through whom we would find deliverance, not in health, wealth, and prosperity in this life of this fallen world, but that we would find eternal health, wealth, and prosperity in the new heavens and the new earth. If you're listening to this again, and if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you do not have, right now, the hope of deliverance that David was longing for and promised here in the text. If you fear this world more than you fear the Lord, if your comfort rests on the lions or the strength of this world, the food, the wealth, the political power, the might, the comfort of entertainment or pursuing our earthly passions in this world, you, friend, are headed toward eternal condemnation. Recognize your need for God's forgiveness for your sins. Acknowledge your sins and beg God to rescue you from his wrath by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Seek to walk in obedience to God's word, not because you can earn his grace, but because you don't deserve it. How can we taste and see that the Lord is good? By trusting in Jesus Christ, following after him, picking up our cross, denying ourselves and following after him, counting the cost of following after Jesus Christ, walking in repentance and faith in him. Not a one-time profession of faith, but an all-of-life repentance. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Friends, as we close, find freedom from your fears. Find freedom from your anxieties in Christ alone. He is the only way that we can find deliverance from the greatest threat to our lives, God's just wrath for our sins. And He is the only way that we can no longer be afraid of things that are frightening. The Lord is good. He saves and delivers His people. He judges the wicked. Find refuge in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the work that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ. I pray for those that are listening even this morning that are not trusting in Christ. Pray that you would convict them of their sins. Drive them to repentance and faith. Cause them to see that they need Jesus. And we pray that you would save them. Give them the assurance that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ that their sins are forgiven. Help them to be able to walk with peace of conscience through this life. And Father, we pray as well for believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians. Father, I pray for uh, the family of God in the church. We pray that you would preserve us in the truth of your deliverance. Help us to not think that tasting and seeing that you are good should be replaced by tasting and seeing that things in this world are better than you. Father, we pray that you would guard our hearts from the temptation to veer away from you to find our greatest fear in the things of this world and of the goods of this world. Now, Father, we pray that you would give each of us the gift of faith and repentance to flee your wrath to come. And we pray that you be glorified in hearts that are satisfied in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.